0: everyone for listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast coming to you during the dog days of the NBA offseason. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of basketball happening. You have Primer, Olympic Games, a little bit of Drew League, but most of the NBA offseason has come and gone. Teams are now looking forward to training camp, the start of the NBA season, schedules being released. That's still pretty far off, so we're in a bit of a dead period, and it's a perfect time to talk about a very crazy offseason, especially for our Detroit Pistons, uh, who added quite a bit to the roster. And we have quite a bit to break down since last time we talked to you when only Ish Smith at that point had been signed uh, during the first day of free agency. Since then, of course, the Pistons have been very active, adding a few big men that we need to talk about. Uh, and I've got two guys here that are also going to help me talk about the rookies that the Pistons have brought in and also just looking at the roster overall. Uh, and we may even talk a little Eastern Conference, so we've got the big work to do today. So joining me for that, as always, is Ben Galker. How are you, Ben? Hey, loving the
1: dog days uh, in terms of everything but the NBA. Great summer so far. Good to be talking with you guys again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a, a very nice summer. Very hot. Very hot summer, but uh, it, it's been very nice. I'm just getting back from uh, from Canada, when, in which I'm quite burnt at the moment, so it's nice to be in, indoors recording a podcast. Uh, and also joining us and probably helping us talk about these rookies, draft guru and Detroit Bad Boys contributor, Jacob Kivenhoven. How are you, Jacob?
2: I'm good. I'm very glad to be here. Excited to uh, recap with you guys for the first time in a little while.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think we'll just kind of go through this in terms of the timeline of the NBA offseason. Uh, and we'll start with looking at the rookies. Two very interesting draft picks for the Detroit Pistons, taking Henry Ellenson and Michael Benege, two players who seem to be likely to make the roster for the Pistons. Uh, Michael Benege, of course, in the weeks that followed him being uh, drafted by the Pistons, signed a three-year deal, uh, a partially guaranteed contract to play for the Detroit Pistons. I think very exciting for another second-round pick of Stan Van Gundy and Jeff Bauer to possibly make this team. Uh, So let's start with those two, Jacob. Your draft day... Just just your your thoughts about the draft for the Pistons, and what do you think of both of these players and the likelihood that they make the roster for this upcoming season?
2: I think they will both make the roster. I don't see really a reason why they won't. I think we're sitting at about exactly 15 right now with Ben-Ager, uh, assuming that Ray McCollum is also going to make it. There might be a little bit of a roster crunch, but I would expect both of these guys, having invested relatively high picks in them, they would be on the roster this year. I think Ellenson was the guy that I was very high on for a lot of the draft process, and then I sort of lowered on him as it went on, but at the same time, at the time that he was picked, he was a guy that I certainly would have had in my top 14 or 15, in my lottery, and I, I liked the pick. Benajay, not really as familiar with him. He was sort of off my radar as an older guy who didn't really have any amazing statistical translations or tools or anything. But he sort of fits the Stan Van Gundy uh, mold as kind of a Hilliard-type pick of an older guy that maybe they could put into their two-guard rotation. So overall, I thought it was an underwhelming but definitely still good draft from the distance.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really nice way to to cap it. Uh, And you're right, the Benege pick did remind me a lot of when the team drafted Darren Hilliard, uh, a player that had some experience uh, in college and seems to fit what Van Gundy wants to do in that backcourt. There was even talk of Benajay possibly playing at the point guard spot. Now, of course, he didn't get much of an opportunity for that in summer league before an injury kind of cut his time short in Orlando. And it actually forced the Pistons then to look at some third point guard options, like you mentioned, Ray McCallum. Do you see Michael Benege having a similar rookie season to Hilliard uh, if you see them as being kind of similar players?
2: I do. I expect him to sort of play 10 or 15 minutes a game during times where the shooting guard rotation is compromised by an injury or just some poor play or anything but I think he's going to be behind Bullock in the rotation he's probably going to be behind Hilliard and there's also the possibility that Stanley Johnson could see some time at the backup two because it's I mean we'll we'll talk about this later with our roster but I think the backup two is probably one of the weaker points on the team so I'm sure that uh Finishe will be thrown in there at some point just to see if that he can give them something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and part of the issue now with depth, and part of it is probably just the uncertainty of players that don't have a lot of NBA experience now backing up Contavious Caldwell-Pope. Uh, that came after the trade uh, that the Pistons made to, uh, sending Jody Meeks to Orlando. Now it seems that Meeks is going to be dealing with some injuries that have him out indefinitely at, for the time being. Uh, what did you think of the departure of Jody Meeks, Ben? Oh, it, it opened up some cap, but at the same time we lost someone that I know both of us were, were pretty high on uh, because of the way he ended his season two years ago. Yeah, and no, hindsight looks pretty good. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately for Jody Meeks, he has had a very rough
1: three years after... Well, I think a lot of people would consider it to be a bit of a breakout season in L.A., uh, and I think the Pistons obviously thought highly of him. Uh, I know when Van Gundy and Bauer pursued him very, very aggressively and signed him very quickly, into the free agency period. Um, So, yeah, I was disappointed. I was disappointed that we lost him and then obviously disappointed for Jody uh, that he got injured. Uh, But, yeah, I agree that shooting guard uh, after KCP is the weakest spot on the roster. I think there are still some questions about backup point guard. I think we have a couple guys in McCollum and, and Ish Smith who I think potentially could be duking it out for minutes. We can talk about that more. Uh, but yeah, I think backup shooting guard is still the real hole. Reggie Bullock proved last year that he can shoot, and he proved that in certain situations uh, he can be a competent backup point guard, but I think there are concerns about uh, him on the defensive side a little bit, uh, and I think probably a little bit of concern about if he's anything other than a shooter. Uh, I don't know if he really brings much to the table outside of kind of standing in the corner and shooting. So I think uh, I would not be surprised um, to see the Pistons look to shore that up. Maybe not this season via trades, because I'm not sure they're really at the position where they want to be moving many of the guys on their roster. Lots of young players and friendly contracts. But I would have to think that a year from now, uh, we would see a focus on, on shoring up backup shooting guard after we, what, after we learn uh, what we have in Darren Hilliard, uh, after what we heard, uh, learn about what we have in Ben Eger and potentially Bullock as well. Lots of unknowns there, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I want to stick at the two-guard spot because after watching a bit of Summer League and seeing how the team and seeing how Stanley Johnson played, what in his game he was working on in Orlando, I'm wondering if Stanley Johnson is the answer at the backup two spot. Uh, Is there a chance that he could see the bulk of his minutes, Jacob, I'll start with you, at the two instead of the three? Uh, Is there anything that that makes you think he's more at at that two spot for the Pistons? Um, I've made
2: it pretty clear over the course of this podcast that I see Stanley Johnson as more of a three and maybe even more of a four in the future. I think that that is possibly his most effective way to use his quickness and strength. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think the the clearest way for Stanley Johnson to carve out a real role on this team is through the backup shooting guard position. And if he can get his three-point percentage up into the mid-30s, I think he can be effective there. And I do believe that just based on the construction of this roster, I think that's where he will be playing a lot of minutes.
0: I I guess it depends on who you ask if it's a good thing or not. But if KCP continues to play 35-plus minutes a game, there aren't that many minutes to be had at that backup two-guard spot. But this is going to be a very big Season for KCP's going into this contract year. Ben, what do you expect from him? Do you see, especially with the depth issues behind him, uh, KCP having to take on a large, if not larger, role in the starting unit? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think he's the best shooting guard on the roster. There's no question about that. And he has the, the tools and the potential to be, you know, I think in the top half of defenders. Um, in terms of starters at shooting guard. I'm not really ready to call him an elite defender yet, but I certainly think you know the top 15 uh, shooting guards in, in the entire NBA in terms of his defense. Um, I do think that the Pistons are going to have some challenges with shooting the ball, uh, given who we signed at backup point guard. So I think the second unit is going to have to have some shooting somewhere.
0: Yeah. So either that comes from KCP in terms of internal improvement
1: If he can shoot 36%, I think KCP becomes no questions asked. He's a starting caliber shooting guard and is a very well-rounded player who a whole lot of teams would want to have on their roster. Uh, If he's not able to get there in terms of shooting the ball, then I think there are going to be situations where I think Reggie Bullock's going to have to play some minutes. He's going to have to step up because the business are going to need that shooting. And, you know, summer league is summer league. I mean, Austin day look like an all-star. We know that. So summer league can only tell us a little bit about what we ultimately want to know about these players. So regardless of what Stanley did in summer league, he's still got to prove uh, at the NBA level that he's capable of knocking down open shots. And until he's able to do that, I, I don't see him as a viable shooting guard because, um, for all the things that Ish Smith does have going for him, he is certainly not a shooter. Uh, and I, I don't see how you can put Stanley at the two with a mystery man at the three. I'm not even sure who that would be yet um, yeah. in terms of the, the backup unit. So I think we got to have some shooting. And, and I think uh, Reggie Bullock is the most obvious solution to that particular problem.
0: Yeah, I I, com- I completely agree with you. And you're right that it seemed this offseason there had to be a focus uh, if we were trying to improve the team on improving the production of the bench and just finding more shooting across the roster. And it does seem like Stan Van Gundy did find a few players that will help in that. Henry Ellison is definitely uh, one of those players. Uh, And the other was John Lure. And uh, Ben, when you, when you mentioned we, we are going to have to find some shooters for that bench unit because of the addition of Ish Smith. And we know he's not a great shooter. Um, and, and probably won't provide much at all uh, in, in terms of adding to the three-point numbers. How important is it for a guy like John Luer or those players at the three and four on the bench to shoot? Uh, do, you, do you think that, that still is a, a weakness for this team, or do you think that Luer is enough for that second unit?
1: I don't think he's enough by himself. Um I'm really excited about Lure. I'll just I'll just plug that. I think um, he was one of the guys kind of on my list of potential foremen who I think could bring some really interesting things to the team. So I'm really excited about that. And I think given the the crazy spending that happened this summer, he's actually on a pretty reasonable contract, which is great. Um, but I mean, look, Ishmith isn't just not a good shooter. He was one of the worst shooters in the NBA last season, like 400 and something uh, 400 and 400. For eligible player. We'll shoot. Now, he could improve. That could happen. But he's not going to be shooting the ball. Uh, Reggie Bullock, hopefully, as we've discussed, will emerge as a, as a quality backup. But there's no guarantee he's going to get all the minutes. Stanley's not yet a proven shooter at the three. So that gives you the four as the only consistent three-point shooter in that second unit. So, no, I don't think that's enough. I'm really excited about lure. I think he's going to add one. Rebounding and shooting, which is fantastic to find both of those in a stretch four. I think it's rare, and I think it's a good thing that we we have that. But uh, no, we got to have more than just lure. I think, and that's going to be that's going to be the long term challenge for Van Bauer as they fill out the <laughs> roster uh, over the next. Like I said, maybe not be a trade this year, but a year from now, uh, that remains the long uh, the long term thing that they have to fix.
0: Yeah, Jacob. I uh, just want to hear about your concerns about the bench, and then also just kind of your overall impressions of John Lur. I want to talk about him and and his signing a little bit more as well.
2: Yeah, I think I don't really have too much to add in terms of what Ben was saying about the bench. I think that Ish despite the shooting concerns, will definitely help a little bit with shot creation. I'm not sure if he'll be able to quite create the looks that other team, other players on you know his team are going to need and. Terms of like the high caliber looks, I do think the spacing is going to struggle. But he's, he's not Steve Blake in that he has the quickness and he has the penetration abilities that are really coveted by this unit. And we, we watched the second unit struggle all year, and I think he's a guy who could directly address that. But I do think that overall shooting on this team is still going to be a big weakness unless you could really count on Bullock, KCP, and Lure. Uh, Lure in general, I I think he's getting paid like a backup over four years. I don't really have a huge problem with his contract. I would, I guess, I preferred them to go to that 11 million or so, someone like Maurice Harkless, who just signed for four and 40. Something like that could maybe be better. I think the the question with Lure isn't so much whether you want him or somebody, whether that space that we took to sign Lure and Marjanovic was only made possible by avoiding the fifth year on Andre Drummond, and that was sort of his incentive for waiting to sign the extension so we could have the extra cap space. So I think the question would be whether you'd rather have a fifth year guaranteed for Andre Drummond or whether you'd have Lure and Marjanovic on three- or four-year deals.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. What did you think of the the cap number uh, for Lure? I, I know talking about Harkless a bit, you, you kind of just touched on it, but $11 million a year for Lure. Uh, with the really insane spending we saw this summer does that number bother you at all for for John Lauer
2: I mean it it all sort of depends on the context you're looking at it I don't think he's not I I do not think that he is not worth it I think 15 million a year is something I've mentioned I've heard on this podcast I've heard on other podcasts that's average starter money so John Lauer is getting paid as sort of a, a higher end backup and that's that's what I think he is he has some very impressive skills as a stretch four. He's a forty percent three three point shooter. I think that's good. I just, I, I'm not sure about the four years. As a twenty seven year old who hasn't really proven himself to be anything special, I just don't really know who we were outbidding on those third and fourth years when we just as easily could have given him two years and twenty four million. I think that they're just kind of locking themselves. Into mediocrity a little bit more than I would like, but I don't. It, whether I have a problem with that contract at all, I, I don't have a problem
0: with it. Okay, uh, let's stick at the the forward spots for a minute because I thought the Luer signing was really interesting. And and Ben, I know we had talked on Twitter about how I thought it was a little redundant to sign a player like John Luer after drafting Henry Ellenson. Uh, I've I I still kind of feel that way, but I want to hear what you guys have to have to say about it. And I guess I want to frame it this way. Um, what does the signing of John Lur say about Marcus Morris and Tobias Harris? Is there anything about those two starters it, that it says that you know? Does this mean that maybe we don't feel as confident about Tobias at the four? Does it mean less minutes for Marcus Morris at the four? Uh, what does signing Lur mean for those two players?
1: Well, I hopefully I. I would hope that it means Marcus Morris doesn't play any minutes at the four because I think he's particularly ill-suited to the four unless you're, you know, talking about a few minutes here and there for very niche situations. I do not think Marcus Morris is a solid four man. I don't think he's a good enough rebounder and I don't think he can match up against any traditional fours uh, in terms of rebounding and, and defense. So, If it means Marcus Morris isn't playing minutes at the four, I'm actually excited about that. I think that would be a good thing. I don't think it says anything at all about Tobias Harris. I think Tobias Harris is going to be the starter at the four, and I don't think uh, John Luehr threatens that in any way, shape, or form. I think, um, as we've talked about at length on this podcast, Tobias um, is a stretch four who can also put the ball on the floor, which is an incredibly rare thing to have, and as we've talked about, the need for a secondary ball handler other than Reggie Jackson. You get that from your foreman as well as um, floor spacing. But I think that's an exceptionally rare thing to have, and I think that's a good thing. I do think there's a question as to whether or not um, Tobias might slide over to the three a little bit more this season, maybe a a 3 position when, when Morris is resting. And I think that actually might be one of our better shooting lineups, ironically, is if you go big, you get better at shooting. Not many teams can do that if you slide lure into the four. So, you know, I don't think it has big implications for either player. I think lure is essentially an upgrade over Anthony Tolliver. He's a better shooter, and he's a better rebounder, uh, and he's younger. Uh, and I think there might actually be situations in which lure ends up playing a little bit of the five. I think the Pistons have a an interesting um, opportunity where they could actually have a stretch five uh, and have a guy at the five who can rebound and shoot the three. Probably not for extended minutes, but I think they could they could give that look and potentially cause some teams some problems. So uh, I don't think it threatens anything for Morris uh, and for Harris. I think it just gives us depth. Now, with respect to Ellenson, I, I just want to state really clearly the kid is 19 years old. <laughs> and when we put that in context, I too would have liked Lure on a three-year deal rather than a four-year deal. But, Lewers 27 now he's going to be 31 when his contract expires and Ellison's going to be 23 when that contract expires so that yeah. gives him you know two three four years to develop which I think by all accounts is a pretty raw uh, a raw game lots of potential but still very raw and not ready for the NBA so you know I think the Pistons have made two key errors with respect to developing young talent over the years the first one is rushing players in before they're ready. And I look at Rodney Stuckey as sort of the epitome of that. A guy who was a bit of a late bloomer, um, but the Pistons rushed him into something he really wasn't ready for. And I think the other thing they've done is given up on players too quickly, and and maybe that's a side effect of rushing them a little bit. Uh, So in this particular instance, I like the fact that they don't have to do that with Ellison. They can let him develop at a natural, organic pace. And you can play Harris and Lure Uh, until you really know what you've got, until
0: Ellenson's ready to play. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I I really liked what I saw from Ellenson, and I started to notice the differences between Lure and Ellenson and how Ellenson may kind of fit better in the NBA. I can actually see him playing a bit at that stretch five, uh, like you're talking for Lure. Uh, And I also think you're right. This is a younger player, and we can basically now use Henry Ellenson's entire rookie deal to see if he has a a place if he can carve out a role in this team and to see if that's going to be worth what he might demand on the open market four years from now uh and right now you know I don't think we'll see a lot of him this season just because there aren't a lot of minutes to go around at that four and five spot so Jacob I wanted to ask you about kind of that log jam and and also wanted to get your opinion of playing lure at the five and a couple of things Ben had mentioned uh do you see a log jam? Do you see guys fighting for minutes at the 4 and 5 now?
2: I definitely see a log jam because I'm with Ben. I really like the you know John Lure at the 5, especially in a situation where, you know, you're playing catch-up, you need shooting everywhere on the floor. I really love him in that 5 role there, and I do love Ellenson in that role down the road. But especially, I just don't think he's ready to be a contributor on this team that is going to have aspirations to be pretty high up there in the Eastern Conference playoffs. But, um, yeah, there's definitely going to be a logjam because you're talking about Lure, who's intriguing as a center. You're talking about Ellenson. He's intriguing as a center down the road, too. And you already have three centers on the roster on relatively long-term deals. And there, there just isn't going to be really a spot for these guys. And I think... I do want to see Lure at the 5, but I'm not exactly sure who that's going to push out. I do expect Boban to play a little bit more than Baines, but I do expect both of them to play at the same time. So it's going to be a really interesting thing. There's just so many bigs on this rotation, and I can't quite predict exactly with 100% accuracy right now how that's going to shake out.
0: Yeah, well, let's continue talking about this by introducing uh, the player you've mentioned, Boban Marjanovic the seven foot three big man that comes to the Pistons as a restricted free agent from the San Antonio Spurs, Stan Van Gundy, basically taking advantage of the Spurs after they signed Paul Gasol, uh, knowing that they were going to be losing Tim Duncan. And due to their cap situation, we were able to swoop in and take away their big man again for a second straight off season. Uh, what do you think of Boban? What does he bring to the table and how is he different from Aaron Baines? Let's start with those three things. I guess the way that he's different, in my opinion,
2: is that he's actually a little bit more proven than Bane's was coming onto the team. His advanced stats are much, much better than Bane's were. I mean, his—he's a bigger guy. He's got better rebounding numbers coming in. I'm not quite sure if he has the same kind of level of sort of high level experience than Bane's does. But I—I'm—he's I, not as good of a free throw shooter. He might not have the same kind of touch that Bane's does. But I think he's. A significantly higher upside guy, if nothing else, that his advanced metrics were so good when he was able to see the floor in San Antonio. So I I really like him as a gamble for $7 million a year, getting paid well below backup money just to sort of see if he can pop. I'm not sort of, I'm not convinced that he really fits the best into the modern NBA game, but as far as a gamble that they're going to take, I mean, I, I have greater issues with them sort of inhibiting their flexibility, but him at three years and twenty one million. I think that's a pretty good contract in terms of seeing if there's there's more to the Bobon experience than just his spot minutes in San Antonio.
0: That's right. We're talking about the guy with the third highest P E R of players who played at least twenty five games and was eligible for that position. And that that's not a great advanced stat. <laughs> Always anyway oh, just no, it's the greatest advanced
2: uh, Jordan, he's, he deserves all that recognition.
0: That's right, so the third best player in the NBA, joining the Pistons this offseason, Ben, what did, you, what did you think of the addition of Boban Marjanovic? Oh my God, I love this signing. <laughs>
1: Let me just say that. Um, yeah, so as a guy who definitely appreciates advanced stats, like. Boban is a per minute monster. And there've been a lot of conversations on the blog and in the comments about the reliability of things like, you know, per 36 minutes stats and whether or not bench players who produce really well in short spurts can produce that over the long term. And I think those are valuable questions and I think they're valuable conversations. Um, but the thing I'll say about Boban is that whenever he's had the opportunity to play big minutes, he has he has basically replicated his per minute numbers. So I think he was absolutely a steal for three years, and was it $21 million? I think it was $7 million yes. a year. And I think the other thing that it does is you've got Aaron Baines on essentially the last year of his contract. He's got a player option, and with an exploding cap, uh, almost certainly he's going to opt out and try for one more big contract after what was really a very solid year last, last year in Detroit. So in my opinion, Aaron Baines might be the most You know, might be the guy they're looking to trade uh, more than anyone else. So you you've got insurance at backup center. So one first good thing that you're doing is taking a chance on a guy who's been insanely productive uh, in a limited role. And the second thing you're doing is making sure that you've got a backup center you can go to if you decide to trade Aaron Baines, or if Aaron Baines decides to opt out. So I saw this as a very opportunistic sort of signing, uh, and I'm a huge fan of it. And Yes, he's 7'3". Yes, he's a little bit slow. Yes, he doesn't fit in a lot of offensive schemes. But ultimately, as long as this is Andre Drummond's team, we're talking about a role that's 12 to 15 minutes a night. And I think having a guy like Boban in that role uh, could really pay some huge dividends. And, and, Jacob, one thing you did mention is free-throw shooting being not quite as good as Bean's, but he's still a 76% free-throw shooter, uh, and that gives the Pistons a little bit of flexibility uh, in terms of those hack-a-drum, bag-a-drum strategies
0: that we're about to see. I wanted to, to just get back to Boban for a second. I think Stan Van Gundy's been very strategic with the way he's tried to put together this front court around Andre Drummond. We saw John Luehr's signing. Uh, One of the big things that Stan Van Gundy mentioned after he was signed was he really liked his defense, his ability to defend the perimeter, to step out. He's got good footwork. And we saw how Kevin Love and other stretch bigs have really hurt the Pistons. And John Luehr, part of his signing was his defense. It wasn't just the shooting, but also his defense. Aaron Baines, it's those late-game situations. He's such a great free-throw shooter. We can go to him in kind of a closer role for a big man. And then there's the signing of Boban Marjanovic, and I just have to think that Stan Van Gundy looked at him as a prospect and thought that at $7 million a year, with Aaron Baines in the last year of his contract, likely to walk, because, uh, Ben, I think you're right, he had a very nice season, solid if not spectacular, but very good in his role with Detroit, and we'll probably have another season like that, maybe with less minutes, but probably similar in this next season. So if we're going to lose him, why not take a chance on someone like this that... They just don't grow on trees. Guys like Bowman just don't uh, come along that often in the NBA. So I think it was worth the risk, especially you're right. It's a role that's pretty small. It does hinder that cap flexibility like we're talking about, Jacob. Do you see now a trade that needs to be made uh, to kind of even out this roster and to kind of improve the cap situation? Can you see that as something the Pistons may do even before the start of this next season? it's going to be tough to give the pistons more flexibility in the future because they essentially spent up to the cap with Drummond's
2: low cap hold and then extended him for the full max so it's going to be tough to really give them more flexibility unless they trade one of the higher cap holds or higher cap numbers on their roster like Harris or Jackson or Drummond and i i don't really see that happening i think that this is basically our roster but i think If there is a team that is really hurting for centers, then I think something that, like Ben was talking about, with moving Baines or Marjanovic or someone like that for more of an established backup guard, I think that could happen.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I would target with Aaron Baines. If if there's a playoff team that needs to shore up, it's big rotation. I mean, Baines is a fantastic backup big. He's a guy who's probably not quite a starter on most teams, but... Really, a, a good free throw shooter, a good rebounder, and a halfway competent scorer. I could see a lot of time, A lot of teams, um, you know, someone has an injury, but they still want to make a run in the playoffs. I could definitely see the Pistons being opportunistic and improving via trades that way.
0: Any other players on the roster that you could see possibly being traded after the moves the Pistons made in the draft and free agency, or does it just seem to be Baines at this point that could be moved? Morris. Oh, Marcus Morris? Why why do you think that?
2: Uh, He's just super cheap, and then there's an argument that you don't really need him if you see Harris more as a a wing, if you see uh, Stanley Johnson being able to step into that role. I think, you know, we sort of talked about Marcus Morris as the odd man out of this future plan for the Pistons for a while on the podcast, and I, I mean, I don't think he's played quite poorly enough to merit that to a certain extent, but... At the same time, I think everybody knows that the team has put more resources into Stanley Johnson and Tobias Harris.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And you're right. With that contract and off a season that was spectacular for Marcus Morris, more than what most people expected, especially if you look at the the second half of his season, the month of April shooting 50% from three, he had an incredible second half of the year. You might be able to sell high on Marcus Morris, but it does put a little bit of pressure then on John Luehr to get to kind of pick up the slack of the minutes at the four spot, and Stanley Johnson or someone to step into that three. So if we see Marcus Morris walk, Ben, who, who, uh, who do we turn to at that three spot? Is it just as simple as putting Stanley in there? I wouldn't be surprised to see Marcus dealt
1: uh, a year from now. I would be a little bit surprised to see him dealt this year. I think ideally Marcus is best suited to – six man role where he can sort of be the focal point of a second unit or one of the focal points of a second unit. So, you know, I don't know Marcus Moore's personality. I don't know how he would, you know, adapt being sort of demoted and seeing Stanley promoted over him, but in a perfect world, that's what I'd love to see happen over time. I think Marcus at his price point, he's locked up through the 2019 season at 5 million a year. I mean, that's a fantastic price for, a proven rotation small forward in spite of the fact that he's not a great shooter. So ideally, that's what I'd like to see happen with him because I think it would be hard to replace his production for the dollar. Um, but I, I just have no idea if his personality is conducive to do so that. Only uh, Stan Van Gundy and Marcus know that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's an ideal trade piece because of the production for the dollar. So if you combine him with Aaron Baines or something like that, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to see that happen. But I I also don't expect Marcus to be dealt this year. I think the Pistons need him
2: for one more year while they figure out starting small forward and backup small forward situation. No, I think I think that's pretty well said. I think, uh, like Ben said, the team really needed Morris, especially over that second half. So I would sort of, I, I sort of wouldn't be surprised if they really saw him as a piece that they needed for a while. But at the same time, we've seen this team take pieces that were helping them at the time but not really in the long-term plan and move them for assets that could be more helpful in their view over the long-term. So I think if I looked at a guy on the roster who sort of fit that mold and sort of the branding Jennings of this year, I think it might be Marcus Morris.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, we've seen Stan Van Gundy be pretty opportunistic in his trades. If something were to become available, uh, it, it would be interesting to see what we could get back but Ben, I, I think I agree with you that if we can hold out for one more year and allow some of these younger players to progress on the second unit and see who can step up, because his production so far has been great, uh, and the role he plays kind of takes the pressure off other guys uh, on in that offense. So uh, I, I really like Marcus Morris, but Jacob, I, I, I agree with you. If it's not Baines, I think that next guy that could be talked about in a potential trade would be Marcus Morris. Uh, and. I think I, I want to just continue this now with, Jacob, what you said. The roster's pretty much set now. And just a few days ago, the the Pistons went out and signed, officially signed, Ray McCallum, uh, the probable third point guard uh, to the roster. I know there was a bit of a third point guard battle that was happening uh, in summer league play with Lorenzo Brown, possibly getting some looks, Michael Benege, uh before the injury. Is the Jacob, is the roster set at that third point guard spot now with McCallum? Most likely, yes. I, I think they, if, if, if he's a, a
2: disaster, I think that, you know, Benajay, when he comes back from the injury, and perhaps even Lorenzo Brown, who they're well familiar with this that, at this point, and I don't think he'll be signed. I think there could potentially be a competition there. I don't really buy the hype that McCallum could take over for Ish Smith, just because I... I think that if Van Gundy had planned that, they would have just given McCallum the contract that Ish Smith signed. But at the same time, I do expect him to be kind of the, the five to seven minute a game sort of third point guard as they try to keep Reggie Jackson's minutes down and really ride him when he is out there. I think McCallum is a guy who is perhaps a little bit overrated within the fan base of the Detroit Pistons, but I do think he is absolutely worth a flyer at the minimum, and that's a fantastic signing.
0: Yeah, I agree. I was surprised that he signed at the minimum. Uh, I, I know he had spent some time with the Spurs. I didn't realize uh, Well, he played for someone else last season as well, Memphis. Uh, he was yeah. one of the 30 or 40 players that played for the Grizzlies last year. So I, this is a guy that I, I think has an opportunity to take advantage of that third point guard role. And Pistons fans should not take that for granted. You want a good player in that spot because... And there are issues, absolutely, with his consistency, with his conditioning. Ben, I know we've talked about that before. So that third point guard spot becomes very important, especially if Ish Smith is struggling because teams know they don't have to really worry about him as a shooter. This is a player that could start in a very small role, but that role could grow because I have to think there's 16 to 20 minutes a game at that point guard spot available, Uh, probably more close to 16 to 18, I should say. Again, Pistons fans, we got a guy at the minimum that may be able to give us something. I was really excited about Ray McCallum. I think that was actually a, a pretty good move.
2: Yeah, I love
1: it. Ish Smith has some very clear strengths and he has some very clear weaknesses. Ray McCallum isn't particularly better at the things that Ish Smith is really good at, and he's not dramatically better at, at shooting. So Ish is a better passer, Ray's a better shooter, but Ray's not dramatically better and not dramatically worse. I think at, at the minimum, signing a guy who I think two years ago at, what was he, 23 years old when he played for Sacramento, I thought he put together a very fine season. I thought he was a very capable backup player. Uh, and I think I think he has a potential to be a legit backup NBA point guard. So I think he's going to have something to prove. And at, at the minimum, what he does for you is he makes Ish Smith work for his job. And I think that's yes. a good thing because – I don't think it should be a given. I don't think anyone's position should be a given on a team that's trying to go from 43 wins to 45 wins to 48 wins to whatever. So I think, at a minimum, when you bring in a proven NBA player at the third string position, you said something to your backup shooting guard that says you're going to have to work for every minute you're going to get and you're going to have to perform because we do have another option if things don't work out. So to me, I absolutely love the sighting. And he's only 25 years old. It it could be the case we've seen Van Gundy have. really quality play from point guards who you wouldn't have expected it from. So I think there's a chance. I think there's an outside chance. It's a slim chance. But I think there's an outside chance that he could actually play some backup point guard minutes here and there, depending on matchups, uh, if he if he um, responds well to Van Gundy and, and things work well within the system. Because, you know, as I mentioned, I think Ish has some, has some real clear strengths, but he's got some weaknesses too, uh, so there might be a small opportunity. So absolutely love the signing, 25 years old for – the minimum wage in the NBA, I think it was as good as you could do for a third
0: point guard. Yeah, I completely. I think Ben brought up a Ben brought up a good point there,
2: which is like, is Ishmith Smith really all that much more proven in a meaningful way than sort of this kind of scrap heap guys? And that was kind of the issue I had with the signing, is that you know that Ishmith he has more name recognition. He has more points per game on his total because he's been handed the reins to some crappy situations where he can put up good stats before. And there's a lot of guys who could probably do that but just haven't given been given the opportunity to do so. And I that's why I think it might be a little problematic to give him a three-year deal. But at the same time, the number just isn't one that's good. It's, it's just not a number that's going to kill you in this new cap environment.
0: The number for Ish Smith? Yes. Yeah, that's very true. So if it ends up that... Ray McCallum is taking some minutes at that backup point guard spot. Uh, yeah, I don't think it would bother me, and I, I don't think it means that the Ish Smith signing was all that bad necessarily. Uh, it could just be that we got to play a Ray McCallum that really fits uh, at that backup spot occasionally, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's good to have two players that you feel confident with. Uh, and Jacob, you're right. There, there are two players that have proven. I, I, I would say just because Ish Smith playing for ten teams in six seasons in his best season being with the worst team in the league, I think there are still some questions about his game and how that's going to translate to him running the second unit. So,
2: Oh, absolutely. He has not proven at all to be a legitimate contributor to a winning basketball team.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think that's something the Pistons must have had in mind when they were looking for that third point guard. And they weren't satisfied with just, you know, signing Lorenzo Brown or waiting uh, waiting for Michael Benege to come through and hope that they could turn him into someone who could play a few minutes at the point guard spot. I'm glad they went out and found a true point guard to do it uh, because, again, it's a role that has become important to the Pistons before. We saw the injury last season and following the Brandon Jennings trade. It's it's a position that there will be minutes available for as, uh, as long as Reggie Jackson is on this team because he just can't play that many minutes because of the style in which he plays, because he... Uh, be- because of his high usage rate on the offensive end, and because of his inconsistent play on the defensive end, <laughs> you gotta have an ab- you gotta have an answer of uh, a-, 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 a decent player behind him that you can rely on for stretches. Uh, so, if we're just looking at this roster, and now I want to look a bit at how they stack up against what everyone else did, because the larger headlines for free agent signings, when you move away from the Kevin Durant's of the world. We're really in the Eastern Conference. There were some really interesting moves that were made by teams that are not the Cleveland Cavaliers, but the teams that could be two through eleven in the East. So I want to start to talk about some of those. But just looking at this roster, Ben, can you confident? Do you still feel confident about this being a playoff team the way we felt confident last year? I know last year we we thought going into the season they were right on the border, but they should be a playoff team. What are your sense of this Pistons team now that we have a good feeling of the roster? going into this season.
1: Yeah, I think they're, I think they're better. I think, uh, I kind of expected it to be this way and it ended up being this way. They incrementally improved. They didn't make any dramatic moves, but they improved incrementally by bringing in some new players. And I think they should expect a bump from improvement from guys like KCP and Stanley Johnson. And I don't think Andre Drummond reached the ceiling yet either. So there's, I think a realistic chance for this team to threaten 48 wins. Now, some of that's going to depend on the East and some of those other teams and how good they are and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think this team is better on paper than they were a year ago at this time. And I think uh, they absolutely should make the playoffs barring, you know, some sort of catastrophic injury. If everything goes relatively well and they enjoy a relative amount of health, they should absolutely win 45 to 48 games. They should absolutely get into the playoffs out East.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, but it definitely got a little more difficult with, uh, some of the moves that teams in the East made. And I, I want to start just in the Central Division because I think the Central became really competitive now in those teams at the two, three, four spots. And, and you can still keep Chicago in there as well. I don't want to completely count them out yet. But uh, what team in the Central Division, Jacob, did you like? And it, do you think there's a team that can fight the Pistons for being the second best team in the in the Central Division?
2: I don't think any of those teams are going to challenge Detroit for the two seed. I think Chicago and Indiana are, are clearly going into the season as two of the most overrated teams in the league based on what they've done this off season, because there's a clear with Chicago. I, they've made the flashy moves. They've gathered as many ball dominant non-shooters on their perimeter as possible, but I do not see a clear path to them being good on offense or defense. And I expect them, i'm pretty confident that they're going to miss the playoffs with indiana i i think that their defense is going to take a major step back by losing the he and me and i don't think young really provides anything that they were missing on their previous teams and i think losing george hill is another thing that's going to significantly harm their perimeter defense so i think detroit despite the flashy moves that some other teams have made they are cementing themselves as the five to seven kind of seed i think cleveland boston and then some combination of charlotte and toronto is going to be one two three but i think the pistons are right there in that four four five six range
0: yeah so ben what is your feeling of the eastern conference and where the pistons fit uh and just kind of starting with the division what do you what did you think of chicago indiana uh and what they did do you think they're real contenders real playoff contenders in the east
1: so i'm a little bit more optimistic about both chicago and indiana than i think jacob is um Chicago, to me, they've they've put together something very interesting. It's interesting if it's nothing else, right? I mean, you've got Rondo and Wade. Neither of them can shoot outside of 17 feet. Rondo can hardly shoot outside of 5 feet. But both of them are still very good players. Wade is definitely declining. Rondo is definitely declining. But still, very good at what they do. You've got Taj Gibson, Robin Lopez, and Jimmy Butler. That, in my opinion, is a very strong starting front court with Jimmy Butler being... You know, one of the one of the best players in the Eastern Conference and emerging is one of the best uh, swingmen I think in the NBA. Then you've got, uh, I think, the question marks come in. There, there's two real question marks for me for the Bulls. The first is can their backcourt make any sense of the lack of spacing they're going to have to deal with, <laughs> and then the second one is do they have a bench? And I, I'm not sure that they do. I like Miritich a lot. A Portis maybe he maybe he develops into something um, but they really have very little in terms of uh, backup at the one two and three uh, and really I think backup center could have could be a question mark for them as well. So uh, I'm not convinced that they're not going to make the playoffs. I still think they have a shot at making the playoffs. And if they can somehow make it work, they might actually be pretty decent. Indiana, I think uh, Jacob has a good read in terms of their defense being the real question mark. They essentially, you know, traded guys who might be a little bit better offensively. Um, and, and improved offensively a little bit and got a little bit worse defensively. Uh, with that said, they really surprised me last year. I think a lot of that had to do with coaching. Um, so I, I want to give them 20 or 30 games before I really feel like I have any uh, sense of what they're going to be able to do. Because I do think they have a quality system in place there, uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um,
2: Didn't they just overhaul their whole system, though? Like They have a new coach. They have a totally offensive-minded coach from like the Sonics and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Um, the, I, I just when I look at their
1: roster on paper, I don't see that they necessarily got that much worse. I think they traded; they just kind of shuffled the deck, so to speak. In my opinion, oh, well, that's fair.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's fair in terms of the type of players they got. But Jacob, you're right. I think changing systems, getting rid of Frank Vogel, and now putting your faith into Nate McMillan. And Nate McMillan in his introductory press conference, I'm not sure how many times he said tempo. It was at least 20 or 30 times you made this big deal out of, we have to start to play with more tempo. Shooting is important. Spacing is important. And then you go in and bring in Al Jefferson and Thad Young, and yeah. you get rid of George Hill. I, I just think that there's a disconnect between the front office and the coaching staff. And I think... Losing Frank Vogel is really going to hurt that team in the same way that it hurt Chicago when they lost Tom Thibodeau. Because I would love to see Tom Thibodeau coach this current Chicago Bulls team. I'm just not sure if Fred Hoiberg is equipped with the style of basketball he wants to play to really be successful with a backcourt of Wade and Rondo. Because I'm sure he's going to want to match them with players who can shoot. But that's going to really hurt you on the defensive end, especially when you have aging guards. And then you're kind of forcing Doug McDermott and Nikola Miritich to play the three and four, which is kind of what I expect. I have this feeling that both of those teams are really going to struggle because there's an identity issue that they're kind of fighting. And that's that's what I feel confident about with the Pistons is we don't have that issue of identity. We clearly know what type of, what style of basketball we're playing. Uh, And it's probably because our president is also our coach. (laughs) <laughs> and that's probably one of the few like the president being the coach as when you're talking about the identity of the basketball team. Absolutely. I think there's no there's no greater thing that you can point to. The the
2: East is so muddled. There's probably only two teams, them being Brooklyn and Philadelphia, that you could point at them and say that there's no way that they're going to be a playoff team. So the way I kinda like to look at it is just looking at the rosters and sort of parsing through which teams can you really feel confident are going to play good defense on a night-to-night basis because i think that's the clearest path to a playoff spot
0: yeah i agree with you and i would also point at orlando
2: as a team that isn't going to make the playoffs
0: yeah i i think it would be very difficult for orlando to make the playoffs especially when 16 of your games are going to be played against miami charlotte washington i think teams that are just clearly better than uh better than orlando that's a team that You know, I I like the Serge Ibaka move initially. I don't like losing Victor Oladipo, but that's a team that I would be really surprised if they made the playoffs. I do like Frank Vogel a lot, but I think it's going to take a little time uh, with this Orlando squad. But it seems every offseason they just want to completely remake the roster. They just add so many pieces each year. Uh, I, I just don't know how you can find consistency with a young team when you keep doing that. So I would be really surprised if they made the playoffs. Uh, ben, is there any team like that that you you would be surprised if they made the playoffs out East besides Brooklyn, Philly, Orlando, Milwaukee? Oh yeah, didn't yeah, I don't
1: I just don't believe in them yet either.
0: Yeah, is, is it I just what surprised. they did this off season or what you saw last year?
1: Well, I don't think they did anything this off season that really gets them overthrown. I mean, they won thirty three games. They got a. And they they need to improve by, what, 12 wins to really have a realistic chance at making the playoffs. I think that's going to be really hard to do, given the fact that teams they're going to be competing with for those final spots, like Detroit, also got better. So I,
2: I would be surprised to see them make the playoffs.
0: Yeah, I agree and with I you. Add, that. I
2: think that's fair. I mean, they, they added a bunch of shooting, at least, and I guess, like, I was always operating with them under the assumption that they would be moving Monroe and bringing in kind of a better defensive center
0: to do that. I- yeah, I agree. And I, I I have this feeling Greg Monroe is going to get traded. I, I'm not sure if it'll be before the All-Star break or even before the season starts, but that roster right now doesn't quite make sense with Greg Monroe. Uh, I guess with Point Giannis, if they're really going to play him at point guard, that does free up another one of the forward spots. But it, it, it still kind of leaves it as a muddled roster. And, and, Jacob, you're right, having him on the defensive end, it really hurt that team last season. So I, I would be interested to see if they try to move Monroe and what they can get for him to improve that team. Uh, I liked adding Delavadova. I like that they're kind of saying, hey, forget about shooting. Let's just grind it out. I, if it's definitely Jason Kidd's style of basketball, I, I'm just not sure if it's going to work out East to get you in the playoffs. Do they even know who's going to start at point guard for this team long-term? Are they totally committed to Michael
1: Carter-Williams? Or is there a chance that Matthew Della Vadova could emerge as the starting point guard? I mean, I just don't think, I look at their roster from top to bottom, and I don't see how they go from 33 wins to 46 wins. I just don't see how it happens. And I think it's, it's very huh? That out east, it could take 44 45 wins to get you into the eighth seed because I do think I think we're gonna say, see the same thing as we saw last year from top to bottom. The east is actually a more competitive uh, conference than the west is, and those four, five, six, seven, eight seeds are gonna be a very heated battle. I think,
0: yeah, I agree, and I think you've got two teams on the bottom of the east that are likely fighting for about 20 wins. And that's not to be rude or disrespectful to Philly or Brooklyn, but realistically, I think a a 20-plus win season for those teams is actually not too bad. And then you have two teams in the top of the East, Boston and Cleveland, that I I at least feel confident are are probably 50-win teams. And then you have everyone else in the middle. And, Ben, you're right. If that makes for a situation at the bottom of the playoff picture where you want to guarantee – 42-43 wins if you're talking about being a playoff team is there any worry about the the Pistons being in that mix on the bottom end uh do you see that there was enough improvement from teams in the east that we could actually find ourselves lower in the the eastern conference Jacob I'll start with you because Ben I know you've you've said that the team has improved. So, Jacob, what do you what do you think of the chance of that team, of the Pistons dropping at all? Because we were the 8th seed last year. Dropping, I guess, would mean just being on the outside of the playoff picture.
2: I think dropping would be a major problem because, like we mentioned over the course of this podcast, they have pretty much locked into this roster. So it's going to be a huge problem if they don't sort of cement themselves at least in the middle of the eastern conference playoff race i don't really see it happening because i think ben is right in saying that this team has added some pieces that are going to help but they've also i think maintained the continuity which really few other teams in the east have managed to do and i think that's going to be a big factor when you're kind of dogfighting between these teams for these playoff pictures and stuff i don't think they have quite the upside of maybe charlotte does or Maybe even Atlanta if they get a career year out of Dwight Howard or something. But I, I do just I feel more confident about the Pistons and what their actual roster is when I'm looking at who can be the fourth or the fifth seed in the East. Well, and let's be a little bit realistic about some of the other teams in the
1: East too. Miami, Miami could be a complete disaster, and they won 48 games this year. They could, they might struggle to win 30. Right? Um, Indiana, we've just talked about. As being, you know, give or take, we don't know what's going to happen with them. Same thing with Chicago. I mean, I don't see anybody under Detroit who's going to leapfrog them in the Eastern Conference, right? So we're talking about Chicago, Washington, Orlando, Milwaukee, New York, Brooklyn, and Philly. What? A, which one of those teams got better than Detroit this summer? And I don't, I don't think any of them did, personally.
2: No, I think you would be looking at more like if it, more of an injury or something. Yeah, it would, take or just something. someone taking us taking a step back, like right. Richie Jackson,
1: just something goes very wrong. That would be, yeah, that would be the only way, in my
0: opinion. Let's, let's move on to the other side of that. So uh, if the Pistons are improved team next season, Ben, what are the reasons this team improves to maybe looking at that 50 win number next season? What, what does it take for that team to get to the next step of, you know, being a team that's hosting uh, a first round playoff series?
1: So in order to get, so last year, 48 wins was kind of the magic number. There were four teams in the East to add that number. To, say, to get to 50 wins, I, I mean, I think everything's going to have to go perfectly. Reggie Jackson's going to have to play consistently good basketball for 32 minutes a game. KCP's going to have to improve his shooting. Stanley Johnson's going to have to emerge in all the ways we discussed. Uh, and I think Andre Drummond has to take another step in terms of his development and, and Particularly, I think the pieces that the Pistons have added on offense take the pressure away from him on the offensive side of the ball. So what I'm hoping for in terms of Andre's development is uh, improvement on defense, where he can really be uh, the anchor of a better-than-average defensive team in the NBA. And I think that's what it would take to get to 50 wins. You really have to have all of those things uh, go well uh, in order for the Pistons to get there. And I think it's probably going to take 50 wins or very close to it to get you home court in the East this year.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I'm glad you mentioned the improvement of Andre Drummond because I think a lot of times when you're previewing an NBA season uh, or pre- previewing a team for the upcoming NBA season, tough sometimes to think about the best players getting better. And that was the issue with Golden State last year. No one saw Clay Thompson and Steph Curry getting better, and that team, you know, and, and ended up breaking the you know NBA record for wins. And it's the same with the Pistons. If Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond can take the next step in their game. And you're right. For Andre, I think it's on the defensive end and then becoming a player who has an offensive game that is a little more effective and finding that post move that he can go to. And then, of course, because every time you talk about Andre Jarman, you have to talk about free throw shooting, improving as a free throw shooter as well. But also to Reggie Jackson. If Reggie Jackson can improve as someone who can run that offense and create for others better instead of just working out of that pick and roll, uh, and so much of the offense coming from that. If he can just improve as a distributor, I think there's a chance for this team to take a step up if we see Reggie Jackson become more efficient and Andre Drummond become more dominant. And I think that's how it would happen. Uh, I, I've seen a lot on Detroit Bad Boys and other other um, media outlets talking about the Pistons that it's KCP's time or Tobias Harris's time, but I still think it comes down to Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond.
1: Yeah, they're the two – I mean, they're the two pieces, right? Uh, I think Tobias – I think Tobias – the addition of Tobias Harris takes pressure off Andre Drummond's offense, and I think that is a fantastic thing because I really do think if he's going to become a legit superstar, he has to be better defensively. He just has to be. He, he has good – but I don't think anyone who watches him thinks, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a very good team defender. I think very few people would make that case. And to me, if you have a guy like Andre Drummond as a better-than-average defender – suddenly the Pistons are really difficult to deal with because as a whole last year, their defense was pretty good as it was. So I think Andre Drummond's emergence as toward this Pistons team getting where they want to.
0: Let's talk about the Warriors and if the Warriors got better or worse. And Ben, I want you to start because I want you to explain both sides of this. If the Warriors got better <laughs> or worse by adding Kevin Durant.
1: Yeah, so I, I've had... It few interesting conversations with other Pistons fans about whether or not the Warriors improved by adding Kevin Durant and I've heard some people make the case that the Warriors actually got worse by doing so and I just don't understand how two plus two equals five when you add one of the best players of his generation to a historically great team I just don't see how you get worse I can see growing pains during the regular season but I I do not see any way possible that any team can deal with them in a seven-game series. I think uh, I am expecting a dynasty, and
2: I think it's going to be really fun to watch. They sacrificed some depth. They sacrificed some depth, but they did not sacrifice any guys who were really going to be integral parts of their seven, eight-man playoff rotation. And in terms of that lineup of death, as it was coined over the over the league, uh, they took out Harrison Barnes from that, and they added Kevin Durant. It was an upgrade in every foreseeable way. And I think that they've they've rocketed their ceiling up to an unguardable, you know, unscorable against level that I don't think any team has hit before. So I, I I do not see the argument that they've gotten worse unless you look at it in a very narrow context that sort of ignores the playoffs and sort of the levels that this team could reach with their best five.
0: Yeah, I I agree with with both of you, and I I think there's a very real possibility that from day one, this could be a super team. I I know when the Miami Heat put together, you know, Bosh, James, and Wade, it took a little bit of time, but I feel like part of that was just the intangibles and the ego, and Ben, maybe that's what people are worried about in Golden State, but really, if Kevin Durant just comes in and plays that Harrison Barnes role on the team— and does it in a way that if he's still Kevin Durant while he's doing it, I think that team's going to be fantastic. I still want to see a seven-game series with San Antonio. And I think now that we're not paying attention to San Antonio with how historically good they were defensively last year, and they added Pau Gasol, which I think is an interesting piece, I still want to see a seven-game series with the Spurs. And I think there's a chance that I, today I might pick the Spurs. And I, and I know it's insane and possibly blasphemous uh, to, to say something like that with how much love this is getting. And, you know, now they're going to go out and win 75 games. But I think there's a chance that there are some teams that could challenge. Um, and it's because of what Jacob mentioned. It's the issues with depth and what they may have sacrificed on the defensive end. You
2: know, but when you pick the Spurs, you're also putting your eggs in the basket of Pau Gasol, guarding the Draymond Green. <laughs> Steph Curry
0: pick and roll. That's and very true. That's a very true.
2: One for me to buy into. I think that's, I think that's very, it's fair. very possible. That the Warriors only win sixty five games or sixty three games as they figure it all out.
0: Yeah.
1: But when it comes to the playoffs, the rotation shortened to eight guys. I, I just don't know how you deal with it. I, I have no idea how you deal with that rotation.
2: And people say that Miami, you know, they started slow, and that's just because super teams start slow, but do people realize that that Miami team started out by starting Mike Bibby and Joel Anthony also? (laughs) Starting Mike Bibby and
0: Joel Anthony. (laughs) Absolutely. The joke was it was run-the-point night in Miami, that, like, a lucky fan would get to run the point because they did not have a point guard on that roster that was of an NBA starting caliber for quite a while. They had to sacrifice quite a bit of depth to make that work. Uh, Of course, it ended up... did you know, it worked pretty damn well for a couple seasons, but I I think there's a chance this works really well from day one, just because Kevin Durant and his personality, I think fit really well in golden state. And I think he works well in that offense and it is scary. I I think there's a chance they could be a 70 win team again. Uh, But Ben, you're right. I think you're probably close to 65 or 70 because I can see Steve Kerr laying off a little bit just because that team pushed so hard for 73 and then to find themselves on the losing end of a Game 7 in the NBA Finals, I'm sure that is it's in the back of his head. We want to keep this team fresh and maybe keep a few tricks up our sleeve for a playoff run.
2: And if he plays, plays Anderson-Varishaw 20 minutes a game, they might not even win 50 games. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that might happen right now, right? I think there's a very real chance Anderson-Varishaw plays big minutes, right? Oh, no. No, he could, he could sing. He could
2: single hand. No, it was just more like a cry of despair more than
0: despair.
2: <laughs> he could, he could single handedly ruin the team
0: for me. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be talking pretty soon, maybe after the Olympics. That sounds good to you guys. Sounds great. All right. Perfect. Well, I appreciate everyone for listening and following through this offseason. It was great to see us get so much support from the DBB community throughout the offseason and Uh, And I hope we continue that momentum right into the next NBA season. So I appreciate it and look forward to more DBB podcasts coming to you in the future. So thanks for listening.